Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to leave our series in the Gospel of Mark for this week. And I uh, just want to remind you, too, that masks are optional during the sermon time this morning. And so we want to invite you to uh, make yourself comfortable however you want to do that. It was about a century ago that by an act of Congress, Woodrow Wilson proclaimed the second Sunday of May as Mother's Day. And uh, he established the time, and this is a quote, as a public, for public expression of our love and reverence for the mothers of our country. So I do want to wish every mom here uh, today a happy Mother's Day. Um, you know, I was blessed with a, a great mom who uh, would do anything for me, and she did. Uh, she was raised on a farm. Uh, she went to nursing school. Uh, she was a pilot in her spare time of raising me and my brother. Uh, she worked as a nurse until she passed away around at about 80 years old. Um, she helped put me through college and seminary and grad school and just always a great encouragement and support. Um, she was uh, also the international secretary for the uh, Association of Women Pilots called the 99s and put on an international convention in Wichita. And she was just a great woman. She had a really great sense of humor, too. And she could, uh, one time I came home from church in my suit, and she had beat me home. She was out watering the yard, and she said, come here, you look hot. And she turned the hose on me. <laughs> my mom. <clears throat> um, yeah, one time she had me call her, uh, one of the nurses she worked with, and and uh, who was having a garage sale to tell them I was the police department and it was illegal to have a garage sale. <laughs> who knew? Anyway, um, I saw a newspaper article entitled 20 Awful Mother's Day Cards That You Should Absolutely Not Buy. So I just want to underline that. These are ones you should not buy. So I'm not going to go over all 20, but I'll give you a, a taste of some of them. One said, Mom, thanks for always checking on me with a picture of a cell phone with 24 unanswered calls from Mom. Another one said, well, I guess this Mother's Day card is late. Looks like someone was raised poorly. Uh, I'm awesome. You're welcome to the luckiest mom ever. Mom, I love you loads with a picture of a load of laundry. And, and then it said, speaking of loads, could you do my laundry? Anyway, uh, I thought it would be helpful to look at Hannah this morning uh, for a few reasons. This past week was uh, the National Day of Prayer on Thursday. And uh, we're also, and she was a mom. And she also dedicated her son Samuel to the Lord, which we're going to do at the end of our service again today. Uh, I, by my count, I think we've had, I don't know, 15, 16 kids born that we've dedicated. And we, we're not going to finish it up after three times. We still have one more time to go to finish all the dedications of the kids who were born uh, over this last year. Um, so I thought Hannah was, per, uh, was perfect to look at this morning. What we learned from Hannah uh, is that she really prayed um, and that she was a mom. She dedicated her, her son to the Lord. Um, and this is something here. There's something in it here for all of us, not just for moms. Uh, whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're male or female, uh, God's word applies to all of us. So at the top of your outline, it says this, that the spiritual decay of the nation of Israel, just setting chapter one in the context, was linked to the absence of a king. 
Immediately before 1 Samuel, we have the book of Judges, where we see Israel torn apart by a lack of leadership and widespread perversity. Judges 21-25 kind of sums it all up. It says everyone, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were supposed to be faithful to God who had brought them into Israel from the promised land, but they'd failed. And when we come to 1 Samuel, we're introduced to Hannah, who is the mother of the prophet who will designate Israel's chosen king. Israel needed wise and faithful leaders and Samuel was the guy to make that happen. So to help us understand the message of this first chapter of 1 Samuel, uh, we need to look at Hannah's pain. And then we're going to take a look at the change in her heart and her prayer and then her dedication of her son to the Lord. So let's read the passage, 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Verse nine, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. We're going to stop there for now. This is God's word. Well, the first thing we need to understand is Hannah's pain. Uh, look at verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Uh, Penina is rubbing Hannah's nose into her condition of being childless. And it says she irritated Hannah. And this went on year after year. And, and the text points out that Hannah's miserable. Look at verse 10. It talks about her being in deep anguish. Another translation is bitterness of soul. It actually means a deep pain. Uh, the, the Hebrew actually means to wail or to roar loudly. So here's a woman who's in all this pain. She's in roaring pain. She's roaring with anger. She's roaring with grief. Why? Because she wants children and she can't have children. And it's hard for us to relate to this, but we need to understand the context. And so the context is that there was a, the, the family status and a person's wealth was directly related to how many children they had. And the more children you had, the bigger your labor force was. And the richer you were. 
and the higher your social status would be. And if you had no children, you were poor. And keep this in mind, four out of 10 kids only were able to survive to adulthood in that time. They had no social security. There was no retirement benefits. And so unless you had more than a few children, you were at danger of literally starving to death. And what was true about the family was also true about the country. The more families that had a lot of children, the bigger the army could be, and the more other nations that they could invade and they could rule. And the result of this, and this is on your outline, is the women who had a lot of children were heroes in their tribe and in their nation. There was a cultural pressure, in other words, to have children or you'd literally die. And if your family dies, the nation dies. And I think this is interesting because what's happening is that the women's, if you were, were forced into an idolatry of family and children. What's an idol? This is on your outline. An idol is something that's good that becomes the ultimate thing. It becomes the ultimate thing for us. There are good things that we can enjoy. But when they become the center of our lives they're wrong. If there's something you feel that gives you purpose and, and gives you honor in life other than God and you make that the focus of your life, that's idolatry. And like John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What is that for you? What is it in your life that you struggle with keeping in the right priority and not letting become God in your life. And so in ancient societies, women were effectively pushed by the culture into making an idol out of family and children. Every culture puts certain things in, in front of people, in front of us that aren't God. Our culture does that. What, and and our, our culture says in different ways, if you don't have this, you don't have anything. What is that for you? Whatever it is, if we accept what our culture is telling us, it will crush us spiritually. It will crush us emotionally. And on your outline, you've got this. If you build your life around anything other than God, you're endangering your soul. So that's what we need to understand about Hannah and her pain. And so this answers the question that's asked in verse eight, eight by her husband, Hannah, why are you weeping? Well, that's why. Because she had a desire to have a child and, and that child would have been an idol for her and distorted her image as a woman. So the next thing we see, number two, is Hannah's change of heart in verses nine and 10. Once, I'm going to reread the verses. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in, in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. So how does she escape these idols? Well, again, a little background is going to be helpful for us. 
So the first thing to notice is the broken family dynamics. Hannah's husband, Elkanah, says to Hannah in verse eight, basically, I love you the best. That's why I'm giving you an extra portion of food because I love you more. Now, how do you think his other wife felt when he said that to her, to Hannah? His other wife who had provided him children, maybe 10, seems like maybe 10 children. Well, this really drives uh, Penina crazy. And so she's cruel to Hannah. And so by favoring Hannah, her husband destroys his other wife's heart. She then turns around and makes Hannah miserable. So I have to say it here. You know, it's interesting that even though we see polygamy in scripture, there's not one scripture that ever looks at polygamy positively. In fact, it seems like the scripture goes out of its way to say if there's ever a polygamous relationship, everyone is miserable. And right here is a good case in point. It destroys everybody. It exploits women. It destroys everybody. We need to go beyond this and look at both of these other two people, uh, Elkanah and, and Penina, and what supposedly they had to offer Hannah. Uh, Penina is all about the current culture. You know, it's like, uh, I have children and you don't, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, very funny. Uh, it sounds like junior hires or something. Her identity and what she offers Hannah is you have to have a child and you have to build your whole life around this child. And Elkanah, on the other hand, her husband, loves both of his wives, but he especially loves Hannah. My love for you should be even better than having 10 children. So what is society pressuring you to be about in your life that's not God? And remember, we're, 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 we live in a culture where it's, it's, it's an anti-God culture generally. And so it's like we, we have to know that we are on the front lines fighting a spiritual battle. Uh, and Satan wants to destroy us. Well, that's what Hannah felt. And here's what I think is the key to understanding this passage. Look at verse nine. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, why would it say she stood up? Why would that make it into the Bible? Well, I think, and, and, and here's why. Literally, it's, and then Hannah arose. And the idea in the Hebrew is not just that she stands up, but she stands up to do something. She stands up with purpose. And the, that Hannah arose, and you have this on your outline, means that she decides to do a great thing, and that is to go to God and to pray. In the midst of her pain, in the midst of her society's pressures, she's seeking God. She rejects what the other two people in her life were offering her, her husband's love and the prospect of children, which didn't look like was gonna happen for her. Penina and El El Elkanah maybe meant well, but Hannah realized that these were idols for her. And so she stood up and rejected those idols and she went to God. That's where she goes. And that leads us to number three on your outline that Hannah prays to the Lord. Look at verse 11. 
And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. This is just a short prayer, but look how she starts. She starts with Lord Almighty. It's not about her. It's about God. And the Hebrew Lord Almighty is literally Lord of the armies, Lord of the multitudes. In other words, Hannah is remembering God's majesty. That God is all powerful. So you have this on your outline. She starts by remembering God's greatness. That God is great. And then she says, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me. And what she's saying here is that she's basically got a broken heart and, and she, she sees herself as a nobody in the eyes of, of, of the world. And that's because she has no children. But most importantly, and I think this is so powerful, she's assuming that her broken heart matters to God. And your broken heart matters to God. The God that Hannah prays to, and this is on your outline, is a God who is all-powerful and yet infinitely tender. That is the God of the Bible. And this teaches us so much about prayer. And the challenge for all of us is that we take the deepest needs of our heart and we pour them into the reality of who God is that he is sovereign, that he is a great God, but that he's also loving and tender and he cares for you. We're actually gonna see that in the next passage we look at in, in Mark, how, how much he loves us, how much he loves you and pursues you. And our culture says, just vent your feelings to someone. Just pour it all out. Or maybe it says the opposite. Just stuff it all down. Don't vent to anyone. And the Bible teaches, and Hannah's example shows us, that we take the feelings that we have and the needs of our heart and we go to God. And when we do that and we pray what, 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 we pray what we've learned in the Bible back to God, it changes us. It makes us different. It gives us a different perspective. That's what it did for Hannah. And we realize and we should that our, our, our emotions matter to God. But we put them in the context of the truth of who God is and what the Bible teaches about God. And what does she pray for? A son. Look at verse 11. Do not forget your servant. And, and what comes next, maybe I think she's, you might look at it and you say, oh, she's trying to manipulate God. She's saying, you know what, God, if you... Give me a son, I'll give him back to you. But we have to understand what that means. Uh, but give me a son, then I will give him to, to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Some of you like long hair, there it is for you right there. <laughs> Become a Nazarite. So we might get frustrated with our parents and they try to push us into some you know, profession, but 
Samuel here was not given a choice. There were two ways to go into, into ministry in the Old Testament. You could be born into the tribe of Levi, into the Aaronic side of the tribe of Levi, where Aaron was a priest and you would become a priest. Or you could become a Nazarite. And uh, number six that says that Nazarites are identified by two things. They do not give themselves to strong drink and no razor will ever cut their hair. That's what Hannah is referring to here. So now think about this. By the, once it says later in the chapter, once, uh, she's, once Samuel is weaned from her, in other words, by the time she's maybe, he's maybe two years old, three years old, he t she takes him to the priest and offers him to God and says, you raise him now. You teach him how to be a priest, how to be a, an assistant pastor, how to help and assist the, the tribe of Levi, those who were priests. So the implication of this, think about this, is just crazy because it's from that time on, she would not see him at, at barely at all because he was in the temple, working in the temple. He would not be able to contribute anything to her as a mother. He would not be able to care for her. When the other mothers were walking along with their sons, Hannah would not be walking with her son because her son would, had been given over to God. He was a Nazarite. He would be in the temple. He would not be able to help her. He, he would not be able to care for her. No email then, no cell phones. Couldn't keep in touch. And what I think is surprising about this is that knowing that her support system wouldn't be there, and we didn't read this before, but I want to look at verses 18 and 19. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. And I think this is so cool because what happens here, she prays and she asks God's favor and then it says she's no longer downcast. She was stoked. She was happy. Even though she had no idea at this point that she would be pregnant. Her perspective had changed. Why? This is on your outline. Because she shifted her thinking from being all about her to being all about God. And what he wanted to accomplish through her and through her son. And if God would give her a son, he didn't, she had no guarantees that that was going to happen. But she says, Lord, I'll commit him to you and to your service as a Nazarite. So before Hannah saw that God might give, uh, might give her as an end, uh, a son as an end to itself, because that's what, that was what it was like for Penina. Her children were an end in themselves. That was her purpose for living. But now her son, she had a vision that her son would be a means to an end. That he would be in service to God. He would be on mission with God, whatever God wanted from him. And she was liberated from all that her culture was telling her and what other people expected from her. And don't just think this is only for women because all of us need to think about how we can leverage the ways God has blessed us to build his kingdom. 
How has God blessed you? With what talents, with what gifts, and how are you using whatever you have for the kingdom? We are all, all of us as believers are in full-time ministry. You don't serve God part-time. So what is it that you are doing with what God has given you to leverage it for the kingdom? That's what Hannah was thinking. That's the way she was thinking. And we can see by the way Panina looked at it, it says it was all about her. But Hannah was looking at it from now from God's perspective, from his point of view. And in essence, she's saying, all my life I wanted a child. But now, Lord, if you give me a child, I want my child to be on mission with the Almighty God, to serve you. And when we, as Jesus says here, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, whatever we do is a means to an end. And the end is always the kingdom of God, to glorify God. Whether that's making money or doing art or having a family or whatever it is, we do it for the glory of God, whether we eat or whether we drink. We do it all for the glory of God. Now think about this. If God had given Hannah a child when she wanted a child, she would have shown him off or her off to Penina and, and, and said, look, God gave me a child. Now I'm a real woman. Now I've got a son. Look at this. But Hannah suffered. And through her, the, the sacrifice of her giving up her son, through her suffering and sending him away at the age of two or three or whenever he was weaned. What Hannah is saying is I'm at peace now because my heart is not focused on me anymore. My heart now is focused on you, Lord. And so now it's safe for me to have a son because I'm not going to make an idol out of my son. I'm not going to make an idol out of my child, out of my family. I'm going to give him to you. And this is the way it should be for whatever God has blessed us with our home, our, our money, a family, our, our mind, our talents, our profession, our health. And we say, God, you're the center of all I have, of every relationship, of, of every talent you've given me. And I want to make you, I want to glorify you with what you've given me. Samuel ended up serving as a judge and a prophet, and a priest. And in this, he foreshadowed Jesus. This was Hannah's gift. Someone who was a, a, an image of Jesus for us, of the Messiah to come. And Samuel and Jesus both lived lives completely given over to service of God and obedience to God. They devoted their entire lives to serving the Almighty Father. The greatest revelation to the nation of Israel was Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But it was Samuel who represented God at the anointing of the first two kings of Israel. And the last thing we see is that Hannah dedicates Samuel to the Lord. We haven't read these verses yet. Look at verse 27 and 28. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. And so now I give him to the Lord 
for his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. So one of the lessons from the life of Hannah that we learn is that, that each of us needs to be growing in our own relationship with God. If we want that for our children, we have to model it. That's what Hannah did. That's what she does for Samuel. We have to model it. It's got to be real in our life if we want it to be real in the lives of our children. And this just doesn't, and, and then it, there's a dedication there. And that doesn't happen one time. It's not a one-time thing. As a parent, you know, you have to dedicate your kids to the Lord every day. You have to commit them to him every day, maybe every hour of the day. Lord, I don't know what to do with these kids. I commit them to you. Give me wisdom to, to be able to know the way to respond, the way to, to answer them. But most of all, Lord, give me the strength to live as an example before them. And I want to point out one last thing that Hannah goes on to pray this beautiful prayer in chapter two. It's a whole other sermon. We're not even going to get there, but I just want us to look at verse eight of chapter two. So she's praying this prayer and she says, he lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor for all the earth is the Lord's and he has set the, the world in order. So the garbage dump that she's talking about in verse eight, ash heap in some translations was outside the city, was where they burned everything. That's where the poorest of the poor would go to scrounge for food. And yet remember that she thinks of herself as a nobody. But in her prayer, what she's saying, this is on your outline, is that God takes these, the, these poorest of the poor and he sets them among princes in places of honor. That's what God does with the poorest of the poor. How does that happen? Do they deserve it? No. This is the grace of God. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about his grace. And this is exactly what God does for us. Think about this. This is amazing. Jesus is crucified outside the city walls for us. That's the most disgraceful place of anybody to die. And there's an execution by crucifixion for Jesus. People couldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because the real Messiah would never allow himself to be treated in, in, be such, in such humiliating way. But he did it for you. Samuel was a foreshadow of Christ. But Hannah points us to Jesus as well. She didn't know exactly how God would use her to, to bring about the salvation of God's people in Israel, that Samuel would serve as a prophet and a priest and a ruler, a king. But she made God the center and God blessed her with a son that she gave back to God. That's pretty amazing of Hannah. But you know what? We have the cross and this is for everybody, not just for moms. We all need to hear this, that at the cross, Jesus shows his overwhelming love. He defeats the enemy at the cross. He pays your debt at the cross. He sings over you with joy because of what he accomplished on the cross. And this is, again, for all of us, we need to live the gospel of grace 
We need to live that gospel out in our lives if we want to see it lived in the lives of our children. And so now we're going to do what Hannah did and we're going to dedicate some children back to the Lord. And I'd like to uh, invite the families, three families who are going to be dedicating their children uh, to come and join me right now and uh, stand behind me as we uh, do this dedication. And as they're coming, I just want to say that um, what a blessing this is for our church to be able to do what Hannah did and dedicate our children back to the Lord. So there are many examples of, of not just Hannah in the Bible, but there are other examples. Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus. Uh, maybe we just have two families here. I'm not sure where the other family is, but we'll go with what we've got. Um, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. So in, in Genesis 22, when Abraham offered Isaac to God, it says very simply, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. So offering your child to God is a confirmation of your love for God. And what you're saying to God is that your child, your most prized possession, will not take the place of God. Offering your child to God is also a clarification of ownership. We've got the other family coming here. We're going to wait for them. Great. Good to have you guys here. This is really special. So offering your child to God is a confirmation of your love for God. And what you're saying to God is that your child, your most prized possession, will never take the place of God. And offering your child to God is also a clarification of ownership. Uh, by dedicating your children today, you're saying, God, this child is a gift from you and they ultimately belong to you. Just like Hannah did with Samuel. And you have the privilege of loving them and training them but they're not yours. Dedicating your child to God is also a, a commitment to raise your child God's way. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord, this is not just a ceremony, it's a commitment. It's the foundation of being able to present your kids to God like we just said every day. Uh, it's a commitment that says, I will pray for my child. I will teach my child to love Jesus and the importance of fellowship. And they need to see the commitment, your commitment to the body of Christ. And uh, it's a commitment for you to work on your marriage, to have a strong marriage, to be an example to your children. And so the key to this time is your own lifelong commitment to Christ. And to keep striving to love Jesus more in your own life. I love what Joshua says when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so I want to start with Emerson on the end there. Get Emerson. Come back here a little closer. That's great. Hi, Emerson. I've seen so many pictures of you. This is Emerson. Emerson Ann Pendry, born August 1st, 2020, to Justin and Lindsay and their family over there. Emerson means brave 
and powerful, that God is satisfaction. And Anne is after her paternal grandmother and is originally from the Hebrew and means God has favored me. And so my prayer for Emerson Anne is that she would be completely satisfied in the grace of God and know that God is always going to go before her to guide her. So this is Emerson Ann Pendry. She loves the mic, I can tell you. She loves the microphone. And then we'll take Emily. Can, can I hold you? All right. Big girl, thank you for letting me hold you. So this is Emily Elizabeth Boland, born June 21st, 2017, to Stephen Jessica. And Emily is from the Latin and means striving and industrious. And Elizabeth is a great-grandmother's name on her dad's side and uh, of the family and is Hebrew for God is my oath. And my prayer for Emily Elizabeth is that she would, like Paul wrote, strive toward the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So this is Emily Elizabeth Boland. Say hi to everyone. She's waving from the back. Say hi to everyone. <laughs> and this is Mabel. Hi, Mabel. Hi. So this is Mabel Rose Kalen, born May 11th, 2020, almost one year old, May 11th to Brian and Serena, and Mabel means well-loved, and Rose is Serena's grandmother's name and means a beautiful flower. <laughs> oh, that sun's kind of bright there. So my prayer for Mabel Rose is that she would always know that she is well-loved by the Lord Jesus and that she would flourish like a flower in the field in her relationship with Jesus and with all those around her. So this is Mabel Rose Kalen. Can I wave to everyone? <laughs> okay. So I have some questions for you parents. Do you now present your children before God in solemn dedication, recognizing them as a gift from God? If so, say we do. And do you dedicate yourselves as parents to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And do you promise to instruct them in the teachings of Jesus and in the practice of prayer and to guide them in the development of a Christ-like character? And do you promise to try to the best of your ability to shape the home life of your children, both by example and family devotions and by your word, that at the proper time they will come to an open confession of Christ and membership in his church? So say we do. In that you have promised before God and his people to raise your child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we now exhort you to set yourselves to that task by the grace of God. I invite you all to please stand. I have a question for you as a church. Do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive these children in love and to pray for them 
and to help instruct them in the faith and encourage and sustain them in the fellowship, uh, fellowship of believers? If so, say we do. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for these precious lives for Emerson and Mabel and Emily. They belong to you, Father. Bless all the days of their lives. Give to these parents and their family and to us, their church, what we need to raise them in the faith that they may grow to love Jesus with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we've been ending these series, uh, this, uh, this time, we, may, may God himself, who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Uh, fill you completely together. Have you completely together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you uh, worshiping our master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable if he said it. He'll do it. Amen.